listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Our teaching text today comes from Luke 24, 13 through 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish are you, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with him assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. So Cleopas is the name, one of the traveling companions that's named in our text today. Cleopas is the, uh, probably a shortened version of Cleopatros, the masculine version of the name Cleopatra. And I don't know anything else about this person, Cleopas. Uh, And in fact, this is the only place that he shows up in scripture. And it's really fascinating that this name, Cleopas, shows up in our text at all. It's a fascinating detail. And that the author included this name, Cleopas, but not the name of the other, could be that the audience to whom the evangelist Luke was writing knew Cleopas, and so this is kind of like a shout-out to the guy that the people know. It could be that Luke, in in writing his gospel, he, he told the one to whom he was writing that he was doing this grand investigation. It could be that he was only able to learn the name of one of them. But the inclusion of this name, Cleopas, which appears to be of little consequence. It's kind of like Malchus. Does anybody know who Malchus is? That's right. Anne knows. Kyle knows. You just uh, didn't have your Bible study. Malchus is famous for have Peter cutting off his ear in the garden. 
the only time we hear a Malchus story. Now we've got Cleopas and we've got Malchus, and the inclusion of these random names of people who appear to be of little social consequence is actually strengthens the believability of the gospel as a whole. It's just so randomly specific, it seems like it would make the most sense for this to be true. But Cleopas and his traveling companion actually do perform a vital function in the text here in Luke 24. They represent everyone who wonders what has happened to Jesus and where they can find him. And this is the question. These are the questions that I would like to explore today. What happened to Jesus and where can I find him? There's the question asked by the psalmist. Does the deer pants for streams of water? So my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? And these are the questions that I'd like to explore this morning. Where is God and when can we meet? Um, I've been a pastor now for something like 12 or 13 years, and I have learned that there's a certain blindness or bias in the way that I encounter the world by virtue or maybe by vice of my vocation. So because I'm a pastor, there are some conversations that people will have in front of me, and there are some conversations they will wait to have until I leave the room. And there's also something about the sample size of people that I often interact with, that the the sampling of people that I often get together with are those who, in one way or another, have self-identified as having religious or spiritual curiosity. And I just don't have the same face time that many of you get to have with with folks at work or at school or in your neighborhood or PTA or whatever with people who may feel very comfortable openly saying they don't have religious curiosity or don't identify as believers. So I may not be the person who's the most well-poised to verify the trustworthiness of what I'm about to say, but it's my own intuition that fewer people are asking these questions right here. Where is God and when can I meet with Him? I could be totally wrong. But it's my own estimation that fewer people are asking this question. And if it's true, I hypothesize uh, that there may be a couple of reasons. One of those uh, may be that it's just a byproduct of an affluent society. So you need to appreciate that the majority of people in this room live in a bubble. We live in a bubble that is not reflective of the whole human experience in the world right now or the world throughout time. We are living in a bubble, and it is a bubble that is marked by access to capital. It's an affluent society. It's marked by access to shiny things. It's like uh, Mildred Montag in Fahrenheit 451. If you spend way too much time with screens and quiet and inner stillness and solitude disappear from your life, the deep questions of life also seem to disappear with it. It could be for those people who feel that they have everything that they need and also a lot of stuff that they want, that they no longer have an acute sense of need of God on the inside of them. In conversation with, with a lot of other pastor friends, I've observed that it seems that many people are, have a, a spiritual curiosity or desire, but they're finding the outlet of that not in some of the traditional channels, but through things like, like microdosing on shrooms. And like growing up, that would have been a crazy, crazy thing. But I bet that many of you in this room know people who've gotten some shrooms and they've gone to a cabin and someone is writing down this spiritual experience they've had. Or more and more people, probably people that you know, not going to ask by show of hands about people in the room, are are like having access to pot. They want to have some kind of 
psychedelic, some kind of uh, um, escape, some kind of ethereal spiritual experience, but they're not doing the, going through the traditional religious pathways to get there. One, reas- one reason may be that people aren't going to places like church is that the church is no longer stewarding the ultimate questions. The people have this experience that the church is no longer concerned with the transcendent, but the church, feeling this pressure to compete with tiny, shiny rectangles and glowing things, has just abandoned the quest and become more like what they are trying to compete against. There is a community of people who I think is asking these kind of questions. A group of people, you could go to uh, hubs of this all throughout the city of Tulsa, people who are suffering. When you find people who, uh, they find themselves in a hospital, or the person that they love is in a hospital and they're not sure they're going to make it, they find themselves asking some of those serious questions. Um, The songwriter Regina Spector has a song called Laughing with God. And she says, no one laughs at God in a hospital. No one laughs at God in a war. No one's one's laughing at God when they're starving or freezing or so very poor. No one laughs at God after the doctor calls after some routine tests. No one's laughing at God when it's gotten real late and your kid's not back from that party yet. No one laughs at God when their airplane starts to uncontrollably shake. No one's laughing at God when they see the one they love hand in hand with someone else and they hope that they're mistaken. No one laughs at God when the cops knock on your door and say, we've got some bad news, sir. No one's laughing at God when there's a famine, fire, or flood. For the people who are suffering, this question of where is God or when can we meet, when is he going to straighten things out, are questions that are front and center. I also think that in every age, there are those people who are at the edges of our circles, who have this deep curiosity or hunger that they can't fully explain. They feel in their bones that something isn't right here. They want more from life than to numb the experience of it. They want more from life than to escape it. That there must be a way to make sense of suffering and evil. And even on the other side of the coin, that beauty and truth, these things that we get glimpses of, must signal to some greater reality, some transcendent truth to which we can have access. And some may not have the experience or the intuition to name it, but they feel this sense of uh, someone is tapping at the door of their heart or, or knocking on the window in their mind, and they find themselves intuitively asking this kind of question, where is God and when can we meet? Last week we looked at two of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and, and today we're looking at another. And if you kind of synthesize the gospel accounts, this one seems to flow into the one that we read last week. And if there's one thing that characterizes the behavior of Jesus following his resurrection, it's movement. Jesus is is constantly on the move. He's here or there. He's in the garden with Mary. She thinks he's the gardener right after his resurrection. No, he's on the road to Emmaus. No, he's in the upper room. No, he's up in Galilee waiting for the disciples. He doesn't set up shop in, a, in one fixed geographical spot like the temple. He doesn't go to a spot where some of the big crowds may have seen him, like when he fed the 5,000 or when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. He's constantly on the move. He's dynamic. He's not static. And it's almost like he's stair-stepping toward what will be the reality for the disciples and all who trust in him after his ascension. No longer is divine access going to be limited to those places where Jesus' feet fall in one particular nation, but will instead be decentralized. And that was one of the things that would have been so striking to Jewish believers when when the Spirit descended. They knew stories of, like, Samson 
the Spirit of God came on Samson, or the Spirit came to Saul or departed from Saul. But on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit descended on the whole church. Divine access was now made available to everyone who had faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said this was a good plan. He forecasted that this was going to be a reality in his conversation in John's gospel with the woman at the well. He said, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. It's not going to be tied to one geographical spot. Yet a time is coming. It has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. Jesus, in conversation with the disciples, says this is a better plan than him being physically present on earth. He said, very truly, I tell you, it is for your good, for your benefit that I am going away. And unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, I have to imagine that numerous of us who have read this and thought about it seriously take issue with Jesus' point. Because I, for one, would rather like never have a Sunday again where I have to preach. If he's going to be physically present in the room, his sermon is going to be shorter. It is probably going to be more confusing, but it's also going to be better because he's like healing the sick and casting out demons. He said, it is better that I go away. And the prophets foresaw a day when God's word would not be written on stone, but God's word would be written on a heart. God would be with his people, that he would indwell us by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, this is a better arrangement. It's better, but I would also say that it feels a little bit fuzzier. When I'm trying to answer the question, where is God and when can we meet, the answer feels a little more elusive than if he were present to us like we are present to one another, physically incarnate. I do want to continue exploring these questions today, and I want to look at three answers in particular, three paradigms that the text itself gives us. Where is God and when can we meet? The scriptures give us one answer, and it's on the way. The text tells us that Jesus talked with the disciples on the way. They're reflecting to the, they're reflecting to the disciples later, these two. As, he, as we were walking with him on the way, our hearts were burning within us. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, this language of the way is, is something that should sound familiar. Uh, Jewish believers would have understood the idea of the way of life, halakha, the, the way of life versus the way to death. If you keep the covenant of Israel, you are on the way to life. If you disobey and disregard the covenant, you are on the way to death. Interestingly, uh, the first believers were known as followers of the way. It was a sect within Judaism, Acts chapter 9. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. They understood by virtue of following Jesus. They were, they were following the fulfillment of God's covenant to Israel. They were now sojourners on the way. Jesus repurposed this language of the way and said it found its fulfillment in himself. John 14, he said, I am the way that leads to life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Where can we go and meet with God? We find him on the way. 
To be on the way is to be in progress. Emily and I like this language, we've used this a lot in our relationship, that it's always fun to meet a person of progress. I mean, a person who's like striving to learn. They're striving to get better. And you think, isn't everyone that way? No, they are not. I heard one really damning, uh, you know, uh, explanation of what evangelical Christians are like. And it said, they are the people who no longer have any questions. I thought, that's right, Bill. That is the response. It's like we've settled, we have a settled answer for everything. We understand everything exhaustively. And I think, ah, have we ceased to be people of progress? It is fun to meet young people who are just hungry to learn. I have, I have a good friend who's young who asks the best questions. If, there's a, if there's, he asks for book recommendations, I give them to him. He devours the books. It's a person of progress. It's fun to meet young people like that. It's also fun to meet older people who are like that, who have been around the block and are still curious, who are still asking questions, who are still wrestling with the Scriptures, who are still trying to make sense of how is the Christian life meant to operate. They're still, in their own ways, stewarding the ultimate things. To be on the way is to be in progress. It's to be in the conversation. It's, it's to be moving toward a greater understanding and practice of truth. Uh, the folks at the Bible Project, if you don't know that, you should look at the Bible Project. They have a video called The Bible as Jewish Meditation Literature. And as a way of explaining it, they cite Psalm uh, 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of the sinner or sit in the seat in the scoffer, but who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. And they give this graphic image of a, a young man holding open a scroll of the scriptures. And the, the sun and the moon go by and go by and we see this man aging before our eyes. And he's one who's meditating on God's word day and night. We're meant to be people on the way. <laughs> as young men and as old men, as young women and as old women who are in the conversation, who are wrestling with the Lord about how are we to make sense of these days that he's given us. The psalmist prays, Lord, teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. This is the prayer of a person who is on the way. I think of Paul in Philippians chapter 2 says, we're meant to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. To be on the way is to perpetually tease out the implications of the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Uh, Aubrey Jimerson on our staff, we have two Aubreys. This is the Jimerson one. She told me this morning, <laughs> she was having a conversation with one of her kids, and the kid told a, a fib, told a lie to her. And she said, you know, Jesus says we're meant to tell the truth. And the kid goes, yeah, but he died two weeks ago. <laughs> like, okay, they very thoroughly covered the death of Jesus. They need to work their way to the resurrection. It'll be good. <laughs> but to be on the way is to continually tease out what are the implications of the reality that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. What does it mean in my life? What does it mean for the church? What does it mean in our world? Way more of it than I want to be true of the Christian life feels like a struggle rather than some kind of victory march. Much of the Christian life feels like seeking and less frequently feels like finding. Staying on the way means staying in the struggle. Some days you wake up and you have to choose today to believe. 
Staying on the way means staying in that posture of seeking, of curiosity. Many great writers have likened the Christian life to a pilgrimage. I think if uh, this was the same spirit that Bono had in writing, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Like, it's before us. It's always before us. There's always more to understand. One of the texts that was assigned today from the lectionary was from 1 Peter, and, and Peter admonished the Christians to live as foreigners. I was thinking about my friend Tim, who just moved. He's been in the U.S. for the last 20 years, and he just moved home to Australia. And think of Tim for 20 years missing the comforts of home. I don't know why anyone would want to eat a Vegemite sandwich, but he sure wanted to. <laughs> but he missed the comforts of home. I was thinking about the image of being a Christian, a, a sojourner, a foreigner, longing for the comforts of a home that we've never fully found our residence in. Being on the way means experiencing and embracing seasonality. There are springs and summers in our life with God, just as there are autumns and winters. The springs are fun, and the winters can be difficult. Some know what it's like to, to, to live through a really long winter in your faith, where you keep going out to check the soil, and there is no new life and growth. Sometimes you feel close to God. Sometimes you feel distant. Sometimes things you feel on fire. Sometimes you feel cold and disinterested. This is a part of being on the way. We can't sustain the high of a never-ending spring until the age to come when Christ returns. Being on the way also means experiencing and embracing different kind of terrain in our life with God. If you picture the, the image of a pilgrimage or of a journey, well, sometimes you're high in the mountains. You have limited access to oxygen and it's cold. Sometimes you're in the desert and it's dry and you wish you had more water. Sometimes you're in lush valleys. Depending on the terrain you're in, it requires different kinds of survival skills. It requires you to pack differently. It requires different kinds of sustenance given the conditions you're in. There are times where things that kept you alive in the past don't work in the present and you have to adapt. One of the times that this happened for me was in the first year of the church starting. And I was in a conversation with a spiritual director and I said, I feel like all of the things that I used to do in my life with God to feel close to Him don't work anymore. He says, well, of course they don't. You're in a totally different season and a totally different terrain than you've ever been in your life. Being on the way means embracing seasonality, means embracing differing terrains. And Jesus encounters us on the way. The disciples reflected on this. In Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus, the answer to the question, where is he, is ahead of you. Matthew 28 the angel said, go quickly and tell his disciples, where is he? He has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you. There you will see him. Sometimes it feels like he's really far off in the distance. Sometimes he gives us a sense of the next steps. Sometimes he's got our arm around you. Where is he? He's ahead of us. In Isaiah 43, God tells his people, expect to find me in the variety of terrain that you encounter. He says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. And this language sounds a lot like the exodus and the conquest, passing through the waters like the Red Sea, passing through the rivers like the River Jordan as they did as they went into the Promised Land. 
And this is like the primary paradigm for understanding life on the way. It's the exodus, going from slavery to freedom, from the place we don't want to return to, to the place we long to be. We meet Jesus on the way. What I want to do today is to encourage you to stay on the way, to continue to ask the questions, to continue to tease out the implications of, since this is true, therefore, what should it look like in my life? What ought it look like in the church, in the world? Many of us have dear friends, people that we love, and their faith was a casualty of quarantine. That not because they had some like big ideological objection, perhaps, or some theological point of disagreement with the church that they belonged to, they simply rehabituated a life that was separate from people who are on the way. And as a result of it, they, their faith has just drifted. It just happened. And some of us, I think of Jude, who talks about, like, if you see people like that, like, rescue them. It's a short book. You can find the reference. I think some of us are in a season of returning right now. We're returning back to the way because we know we've strayed. I, I want to challenge and encourage you to keep yourself in that posture of seeking and to keep yourself in a posture of, of curiosity, of crying out, of growing, of learning, of being open to instruction, open to correction. Jesus meets us on the way. Where and when can I meet with God? We meet with him on the way. A second a paradigm or place that the scriptures show us in Luke 24 here where we meet Jesus is in the scriptures. This is what we just read in Luke 24. It said, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, this is talking about the books of Moses, like Genesis through Deuteronomy and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I so desperately wish they would have written down literally everything he said. They asked each other in reflecting on this, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Some of you will know 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, but hear the verses that precede it. Paul writing to young pastor Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned. Stay on the way. Stay in the conversation. Stay in the journey. Continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. I pray that the children, my children and the children of our church will be able to say from infancy they've known the Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I was thinking this week, it's a bit of an odd observation that I am not aware of anywhere in the New Testament where the disciples who are hungry to be in God's presence go out in nature to experience Him. Which is kind of interesting. Now, you've experienced the, the Lord's presence in creation. I have too. I remember driving with my family as a high schooler to the Grand Canyon, and we come up the crest of the hill, and the Grand Canyon is there, and the sun is setting, and this like 1999 song by Michael Gunger called Where Can I Go was coming to like the perfect crescendo at the bridge, and my heart just poured out like all the beauty and love and worship. Like you can certainly experience God in nature. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, Psalm 24. But it just struck me. I'm not aware of anywhere, though I'm open to correction, in the New Testament where the believers want to be in God's presence, and so the first place they go is nature. 
And this shows us the differentiation between what we could call general revelation. Romans chapter 1 says all of humanity is, is without excuse because to some degree in the created world they should, they should come to accept that there's a creator. But in the Holy Scriptures, and most especially in the person of Jesus Christ, we're given the specific revelation of God who wants to be known. Nature can teach us that there is a God. The Scriptures and the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we learn who that God is and what that God is like. But I will tell you, the scriptures can be difficult. The scriptures can be esoteric. It often goes poorly when you're new to the scriptures to just thumb it and hope you land on something good. You're usually going to land on something a little bit out there or bizarre. The scriptures can be difficult to know where to start. I do appreciate the saying, when the student is ready, the teacher doth appear. For the person who is hungry for insight in a, in a Proverbs 2 kind of way, who's crying out for understanding, who's seeking for it like hidden treasure, you're going to find something in the Scriptures. For the person who's truly starving, they are going to find something to eat. If you're looking for a place to start, there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. You could read one a day. There are 89 chapters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all put together. If you read a chapter a day, you're going to make your way through the whole Gospels in about three months. And as you read, read with faith and ask God to speak to you. In a minute, we'll pray the Lord's Prayer. And the more I have been praying the Lord's Prayer in my discipleship, the more I think this prayer pretty much covers it. Give me today my daily bread. Lord, today I need to feast on your word because I am hungry. And if you don't feed me, I will have nothing to eat. And read the scriptures with a curious and a coachable posture and listen to what the Lord says to you. Now, you may feel inspired by this. And so you think, I'm going to go to the red letter stuff, to the gospels. And you go to Matthew chapter 1. And you're like, I'm ready to learn. And the first thing you read is a genealogy. And you're like, well, dang. This is like the Old Testament kind of stuff that I wanted to avoid. He begat he, begat blah, 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 blah. It's like, that doesn't do anything for me. You're like, okay, give me today my daily bread. What do you got in here? And you pay attention to these names. And Tamar, who's Tamar? I don't know. Rahab, who's Rahab? I, I may have heard a Bible story about her. Ruth, that's sounding a little more familiar. Uriah's wife. And each of these names, kind of like a hyperlink, you, you click on them and you're like, oh, that's so odd that Tamar would show up in the genealogy of Jesus. And Rahab, like, wasn't she the prostitute from Joshua? She showed up in the genealogy of Jesus and Ruth. Now, that's kind of a cool story, but they're not Jewish, are they? And then there's Urias. Why don't they call her by her first name? And you realize that how profound it is that these, these people, their names have been included in chapter one of the story of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, how cool in a patriarchal society for four women to be named in the genealogy of Jesus. Isn't that a bit funny? And then you think about who these people are. I mean, these are women, some of them of ill repute. Some of these people didn't exactly put their best foot forward when they had like their 15 minutes of fame in the Bible. You think, well, gosh, if, if they can be included in God's story and their story can be writ rewritten to like accentuate the beauty of the gospel, then maybe God can rewrite my story and even my story with all of its warts and me with all of my private struggles. Maybe even my story can be redeemed too. When and where can I go and meet with God? He, he wants to meet us on the way, in the process, in the conversation. He wants to speak to us through the scriptures that God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so we can have everything we need for every good work. 
When and where can we meet with God? He promises to meet us at the table. Think again of this, this text in Luke 24. It says, When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it with them. And in the breaking of the bread, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him as you. Uh, one of my seminary professors, Bob Stamps, some of you all will remember him from the early 80s in Tulsa. He said, faith needs something to do and something to touch. Naaman the Syrian, when he had to get healed of his disease, was told to go and dip seven times in the River Jordan. He needed something to do and he needed something to touch. He needed to walk to the Jordan and dip himself. He needed something to, to touch the water itself. And at the table, the Lord has given us something to do with our faith. Something to do, we come forward with empty hands and in faith we receive. And something to touch, this bread and this juice, this this wafer. He's given us something objective and something concrete. And I love the objectivity of our faith. We have a God that we cannot see. He's given us this very tangible thing that not only can we see and touch, but we actually ingest. And Jesus wants us to ingest his life. John chapter 6, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. John 15, if, if, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. The, the, the language that comes to us in Luke 24 is overtly Eucharistic language. It's communion language. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, look, I, I know I'm speaking to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? He doesn't say a mere drink this and remember, there's some kind of participation. There's some kind of fellowship with the risen Christ happening with the cup of thanksgiving. And it's not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. He goes on in the next chapter to say, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning, without recognizing, without appreciating, Christ is with us eat and drink judgment on themselves. See, that's why many of you are weak and sick. A number of you have fallen asleep. We're not taking our medicine. Uh, Think of the stories in the Gospels where it says Jesus was not able to do many miracles there for their lack of faith. I wonder how many times you have received Holy Communion without faith, without trust. I wonder how many times you've been crying out, help me out here. And he's coming to you in the place where you least suspect it. You don't even know to hope or know to trust that somehow in the bread and wine he might actually want to meet your needs and and nourish you. Nature lovers think they can encounter God in in the natural world, but they forget the bread and the wine. And charismatics and Pentecostals think they can encounter the Holy Spirit anywhere except the table. That's the last place they would expect. And evangelicals love to encounter God in the Bible, but they don't expect him to show up in the bread and the wine, one of the places he promises to meet us. Paul says, when you come, you should examine yourself. He's also saying you should examine the bread and wine. You should discern Jesus is here. When you come, you ought to come with a right spirit. Those, there are those who are missing out on health. They're missing out on life and vitality because they fail to discern the body of Christ. Some of the sweetest moments in my life with Jesus have happened at the communion table. 
I think of a period that was especially difficult for me. I would just, I would like, I don't know, it's never used the word clinical depression, but depressive for a period of some time. It was significant. And one of the first times I felt like someone was training me to expect the Lord Jesus to meet me at the table, I came to that table with empty hands and with faith, and I just knew that he was with me. As hot tears rolled down my cheeks, I came in faith, trusting that there was something more going on than simply remembering Jesus and feeling bad about your sins. That he was there. What I would love to encourage you to do, and and more profoundly than that, the history of the church over the last 2,000 years and the Holy Scriptures commend us to come to the table with faith and expectation. To believe that somehow... When we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we're participating. We're, it's the word koinonia. It's fellowship in the New Testament. We're having koinonia, fellowship with the risen Christ. You don't have to understand it. You don't, have to under, you don't even have to be able to explain it. Just come with faith that Jesus is here. Believe that he is present and he wants to meet with you. Examine yourself as you come. Confess your sins. Not in a, in a way that's like, You don't need to be ashamed of doing it. Come to be liberated in confessing our sins, confessing our need. Come in faith and encode into the shape of your body with empty hands. Lord Jesus, I want to receive from you. Your faith needs something to do. And then when you are given something to touch, the bread and the wine, eat it in faith and trust that the Lord Jesus will nourish you and tend to your needs. And then the natural response is gratitude and thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have met with me here. And thank you that you are good. I can trust you on your promises. Now I'm going to go in confidence that you are with me. Bishop Todd Hunter, the bishop oversees our church. I can't recall if it was in the car with me or with all of us together. He said really simply, like, Jesus, whatever you want to do at the table, we're on board for that. Whatever you intended by this meal... I want to eat and be satisfied. And I think that's a great posture for us today. Maybe some of you are like, this sounds Catholic. I'm not saying saying that. This doesn't literally become the body and the blood of Christ that offends the senses. But Jesus is present with the bread and the wine. We don't have to fully understand it. We cannot fully explain it. Just as we cannot explain how Jesus is completely God and completely man, we believe in a triune God that is really and truly three persons and also one. These are things that that confound our ability to explain it. These are the holy mysteries. We cling to them as precious to us, just as we cling to the truth that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Let's pray together. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.